Love that story, and I love hearing when we accept the grace of God, uh, how he changes our hearts and changes our lives, changes our eternal destinies, and it's this amazing gift that God gives us. And so we're going to talk about here this weekend of what happens when we accept God's grace and kind of the dynamic things that happen in our lives. Uh, before we kind of get into that full full blast, I want to just remind you again about next weekend and uh, encourage you throughout this week, one, uh, to pick one of the three nights and come to communion. That's a big deal. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're invited to communion, and the Bible says you should do it. Jesus literally said that. He said, do this in remembrance of me. So that's why we practice communion, is because our Savior told us to do it. So come out to that, bring your family. If you've never been to a communion at Grace before, you will love it. Uh, it's very different, it's very meaningful, and uh, it's a, Ryan called it an ancient form of communion, which it is, and uh, it's like the, how the early church did it. So take advantage of that, and uh, go out online, check out that little video, do that first component, and you'll make that a very special evening that will really zero you in on kind of the heart and the celebration of, uh, of Easter. So pick one of those three nights and come to that. And then next weekend, uh, come to one of the services. Encourage you to come Saturday night, either at the extension or here, or come to one of the early services here. In other words, if you don't have a guest with you and you're a part of the Grace Church family, pick the service most inconvenient to you and go to that one. Uh, We're giving a a 2% off your tie that week, if you'll move like that. Uh, But especially Easter Sunday morning is when our community really, really responds. And so we want to be great hosts and make grace as available as possible to them. So keep that in mind and uh, look at that. So we're in this series, we're going to finish it this weekend called My Life Changed When, and we're talking about these God moments in our lives, right? So the Bible says, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you are God's workmanship, you've been created in Christ to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. And how God prepares you is he molds you and he shapes you oftentimes through life's Events. It's the good stuff of life, right? The, the wonderful things like kids being born or a new uh, marriage or something like that. And the painful parts of life, loss, those kind of things. But all of those kind of go together and they're used by God to mature us and complete us and to shape us into who he wants us to be. So we've been talking about that for several weeks. Encourage you to uh, put up Life Change Win videos and, uh, and post those up on your favorite social media platform. Bunch of you have done that on, uh, on Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is that you use. Encourage you to keep doing that. It's amazing the conversations that are spurred because you got up and said something about how God works in your heart. And it's amazing how when you're willing to do that, it also emboldens other people to talk openly about their faith. So if you haven't done that, I encourage you to and uh, keep participating in that. But this weekend, I want to take us kind of to the, the, the wrap-up feature of this whole thing because everything that comes around, the idea of my life changes when, is tied to our relationship with Christ. And it's really not until we start a relationship with Christ and understand our need for a relationship with Christ that he can guide us and direct us and kind of instill that, that power for change within us. So we're talking about that this weekend. I'm going to talk specifically about the idea of grace, that my life changes when I accept the grace of God. 
Now, let me kind of give you a clinical definition of grace, and then we're going to talk through this a little bit and show you how it works out. So here it is. The, the, the clinical, kind of the cold definition of grace is God's grace, what that means is God's unmerited favor. God's unmerited favor. And it's the idea that God loves us because he chose to love us, right? So I can't earn God's love. I can't demand God's love. I can't be religious enough for God's love. God chooses to love us because he chooses to love us. So God's unmerited favor. And that shows up in things like his love for us, his forgiveness he offers to us, his compassion, his mercy, his patience, right? His sacrifice. All of those are kind of presentations or outplay of the grace of God, that God is loving me because he chose to love me. So when I get a hold of that and I accept God's grace in my life, that winds up being what leads me or the point of my salvation, where I look and say, God, I'm not gonna earn my salvation anymore. I'm gonna quit trying to be a good, I'm gonna accept what you did for me and receive the salvation, ask you for the salvation that you offer to me. Okay, now that's kind of the end of the line. I actually want to take this conversation and reverse it to the beginning of the line. Because if I could change the name of our conversation this weekend, I would change it from my life accepted, my life changed when I accepted grace. I would change it to my life changed when I accepted my sinfulness. It's not until I accept what God says about me that I am a sinner that I even know or understand that I am desperately in need of grace, right? Now, this is what happens in our, <clears throat> kind of our culture today. And the younger you are, the more true this is. So if you're 40 and under, if you're kind of my age or under, I'm 40-ish, right, or under, we were raised in a culture which taught us to think very highly of ourselves. So we were raised to have high self-esteem. We, taught, we were taught that in school. We were raised to think of ourselves as a good person, to think of ourselves as, as a good-hearted person. We were raised with the mindset that I am innately good and it's only my environment that corrupts me. So if my mom wasn't crazy, if my dad wasn't nuts, if my sister wasn't mean, then I would be, left to myself, I would be a good person. And we tend to have that worldview and kind of see everything from that worldview out. Now, how that affects us spiritually is pretty dynamic because it'll start taking us down a, a, a difficult road. So if I think of myself as a good person, a good-hearted person, a person who at their very core, I'm really good, I just kind of struggle with my humanity, then what happens is this, it's, it's not a hard stretch for me to think that God would love me. God loves a good person, right? So that, that's not that big of a deal. That makes all the sense in the world. Now, it becomes a stretch when we think about God loving a bad person, so if you're a murderer, if you're an adulterer, if you're a racist, if you're like this awful person and God loves you, man, God is a loving God. But if I'm a basically a good person and God loves me, I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's really nice to know that God loves me. And we don't tend to recognize our need for grace because we don't recognize the depth of our sinfulness. Now, here's the thing. If you start thinking about this a little bit, 
here we are on Palm Sunday. We're getting ready to head into Holy Week, and it's, it's the week of the year that our culture celebrates what Jesus did. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Everybody is all cranked up to see him. Hosanna, 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 right? A few days later, he's arrested. He's falsely accused. He's beaten. He's mocked. He's spat upon. He's crucified. He hangs there in the sun until his lungs fill up with his own fluid and he suffocates. He dies. The earth goes dark. The temple veil rips, right? Jesus is buried. He raises again. Jesus goes through all of that. Why? He doesn't go through all of that to make good people better. That would be a total overreaction if all he was doing was making good people better people. He does all of that to make dead people alive. And that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that as a human being in my, left to myself, I'm dead spiritually. I'm dead in my trespasses and sin. And when I receive the grace of God, when, when I accept Christ's salvation, the Bible says I'm, I'm resurrected. I'm made alive spiritually. I'm not a good person who could be a little bit better if I hung out with Jesus some. I'm a dead person in which Christ had to give his life, demonstrate his power through his resurrection to offer me the power to be resurrected spiritually. But in our culture, if you're like me, I, didn't, I never thought of myself that way. I, I wouldn't think of myself as a horrific sinner. I would think of myself as a guy that's kind of trying to get along and do my best. Did I need a savior to suffer and die for me? I don't know. Because I'm a good person, it's nice that Jesus makes me better. But did I need to be rescued from spiritual death? It starts to become a stretch, right? Now, there's an illustration of this or a picture of this in the Bible. So, so kind of the, the good news is we're not the first group of people to struggle with this, right? This has always kind of been something that people thought about. And there's other people that have kind of thought like we would tend to think over time. And I want to show you this in the Bible. Go in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there's something there in the chairs. It's page 721 in those Bibles. And we use the, uh, the Bible app version, so you can, I can't remember the name of it, I had to look at the screen, version, and uh, you can open that up and use it if you want. And I want you to see this, and I want you to see how this plays out in real time, and you'll discover that we're kind of not alone in the way that we think about these things. Ready? Verse 36, chapter 7, Luke, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is and that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owe money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. 
Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You judge correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not offer me any water for my feet, yet she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to talk among themselves. Who is this who even forgives sin? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. So this is the scenario. The Pharisee was a religious leader in the ancient world, right? He knew the the existing Bible inside and out. He kept all the rules. He kept the 10 commandments. He thought down to the letter of the law. He kept all the rules, practiced all the religion that he was supposed to practice. He was a upstanding, good, highly moral, highly ethical person, right? Jesus comes to town. It would have been very common for a religious leader like a Pharisee to invite kind of a religious superstar like Jesus, because that's kind of how he was perceived at this point in his ministry, to lunch. So he invites him to lunch. This was such a big deal that when they did this, they would invite other people to stand around the table and watch them eat and listen to their conversation. So he invites them to lunch, and they're surrounded by these people in this crowd then breaks through this person that the Bible calls the sinful woman. That probably meant she was a prostitute. So the prostitute comes, she breaks through kind of the receiving line, runs to Jesus's feet. They would have been reclined at a table. So she runs to Jesus's feet. She's weeping. Her tears wet his feet. She dries his feet with her hair. And she takes an alabaster jar of perfume and pours it on her feet. That jar of perfume significant because that jar of perfume would have been the most valuable thing she owed, owned and it would have been one of the tools of her trade. So she would have put that on as she was looking for customers. So she takes her most valuable thing and the thing that most identifies who she is and she pours all of that at Jesus' feet. Probably earlier, this lady had heard Jesus teach. Probably earlier, she had heard that forgiveness of sin could be offered. And that triggered in her heart a desire to interact with her Savior, to receive the forgiveness of sin, to turn from her old life. So when she breaks through that crowd, she's breaking through in humility and she's breaking through in gratitude and she cannot help herself but to respond to her savior who is offering her grace, unmerited favor. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how sinful you are. You come to me, ask for forgiveness and you will receive it and Jesus forgives her sin. Now, the other person in the story is the Pharisee. And so the Pharisee sees all this happen and he thinks to himself, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know who this woman is. He would know that she's, she's a sinner and she's defiling him by touching his feet and kind of spreading her sin to him. He thinks that to himself 
and Jesus reads his mind, which was always a bummer about having lunch with Jesus. He could read your mind. So he thinks this to himself and Jesus answers him, which would have freaked me out a little bit, right? And Jesus answered him and said this, look at verse 44. He said, how would someone, paraphrasing, whose debt has been forgiven respond to the one who forgave the debt? Would they not love him passionately? Yeah, the teacher says, that's what they would do. And then Jesus says this in verse 44. He turned toward the woman and said to Simon, you see this woman? I came into your house, Simon, and you did not give me any water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. That's an ancient Middle Eastern greeting is all that means. It's an act of hospitality. You didn't shake my hand. You didn't give me a hug, right? She has not stopped kissing me. She has received me. She has not stopped kissing me from the, since the time I walked in. You did not put oil on my head. Same thing, ancient Middle Eastern custom of hospitality. She poured her perfume on my feet. She is at my feet responding to me with humility and gratitude as her Lord and Savior, ready? Because she has received the truth about her sinfulness. She knows who she is. She's accepted who she is. And she's responding appropriately because she has had and wants her sin forgiven. The Pharisee, Simon, you, when I showed up to your house, you didn't treat me as a savior. You treated me as an equal. You didn't wash my feet because you thought to yourself, you're a religious leader, I'm a religious leader. You're a well-behaved individual, a highly moral person, I'm a highly moral person. You know the scriptures, I know the scriptures. Why would I wash your feet? That's what a servant does to a master. Not what one highly moral person does to a highly moral person. The Pharisee didn't see his need for God. He interacted with Jesus as an equal. As he was sitting and listening to Jesus talk and seeing this event play out, He wasn't thinking to himself, wow, I should be at the feet of Jesus asking for the forgiveness of my sin. He was thinking to himself, hmm, I'm a good person. I'm well-intentioned. I live a highly moral life. He would have the mindset that many of us would struggle with. And he was not receiving the grace and the forgiveness of God because he was not accepting the depth of his sin and his need to be forgiven. Now, let me show you what the Bible says about every human being. Flip to the right a little bit in your Bible to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, page 783. The book of Romans, God speaks in the Bible And he makes, in essence, kind of this declaration about every human being that's ever lived and who will ever live. And he says this, 
This is our spiritual condition. Verse 10, chapter three, Romans, as it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of viper is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The apostle Paul is speaking on God's behalf and he says, listen, this is the, the, the true condition of humanity. Nobody's righteous. Nobody can work their way to God. Nobody can earn their way to heaven. No, you can't put a big enough check in the basket when it goes by to pay off your sin. You can't do it. There is no one equal with Christ. Every human being must fall at the feet of Jesus. None of us can do this on our own because we are all defined and driven by sin. Now, that sounds like some old-fashioned fire-breathing preaching, doesn't it? I'm like remembering my childhood suddenly, right? And it sounds weird. In fact, that, it sounds offensive to the modern ear. But it's true. It's true of who we are. We cannot live a perfect life. We cannot keep the law of God. Therefore, we are guilty of being a sinner. Now, let me prove it to you. The law of God is summed up in in something called the Ten Commandments. So these are 10 rules. Let's just look at these 10 rules. And and I'm gonna do a quick survey. This is a raise your hand survey, okay? And we're gonna see how we do with the 10 rules. So rule number one, commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. What it means is this. Is there anything in your life that your identity is tied to more than Christ? Your job, your hobby, your husband, your wife. Is there anything where people would look at you and say, oh, that's so-and-so. You know what they are? They are a, and they put something else in there. Is there anything in your life that's tied, your identity is tied to more than Christ? If that's true of you, raise your hand. Right? Okay, you broke commandment number one. Here we go. Number two, you shall make no idols. Is there anything in your life that draws more of your time and attention than Christ does? So this week, Have you done anything this week that took more time than you spent in God's word, spent in prayer, spent doing the ministry, or spent evangelizing? If you've done anything that spends more time than that, raise your hand. Number two, you know what? Somebody call security. You you guys are audacity. Okay, number three, here we go. You shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain. Have you ever said, I swear to God, I'll never do that again? Has anybody ever broken a marriage vow which you took in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? If you're married, raise your hand because you've all done it. Because you looked her in the eye and said, you will always be the highest priority of my life. And that lasted to like Tuesday, right? So 
but you vowed it in the name of God. All right, you broke that one too. You guys are a mess. You need discipleship. Number four, you keep the Sabbath day and make it holy. Do you take at least a day out of your week and do nothing but rest in the Lord and recharge spiritually? That's the Sabbath principle. Anybody not do that? Raise your hand. Okay, wow, you guys are striking out. It's amazing. Saturday night service did a lot better than you guys did, frankly. That's why you should probably go there. Honor your father and mother. Anybody talk bad about their mama on Snapchat? Yeah, you're afraid of your mama, aren't you? Yeah, so now you're a liar. That's coming. Um, You shall not murder. Anybody hate someone in their heart? Jesus said if you hate your brother, it's like committing murder in your heart. Anybody hate somebody? Sure you have. Anybody hate Michigan? There you go, right? We're all in it together. If you cheer for them, there's another commandment here. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus says, if a man looks lustfully on another woman, he's committed adultery with her in her heart. Any men in here committed adultery? Any men in here committed adultery, right? Everybody, chicken. You're afraid of your wife. Mine's not here, so I'm not, right? (laughs) You shall not steal. Anybody stolen anything? A pencil, a penny, time from your boss. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Anybody ever tell a lie? Every hand that's down is lying, right? You shall not covet. Anybody ever been jealous of anything, right? So every person in here has just freely admitted that you've broken all 10 of the commandments. But I thought we were good people. Wait a minute. I thought we had a well-intended heart. Now, wait a minute. Are you telling me that when left to yourself in a vacuum, you will choose the sinful option over the godly option? That when you're pretty positive, you won't get caught? You won't look at porn? You won't flirt a little bit? You won't bend the rules? Of course you will. Me too, why? Because I'm by nature a sinner. I'm the prostitute. I just think of myself like the Pharisee did. We are not good people, the Bible says. Our hearts are deceitful and wicked, so much so that we don't even know when we're sinning. When given an option, we will, we will always operate in our best interest. We'll always be selfish. And yet the Bible says in Philippians specifically to put the interest of others above yourself. Isn't that interesting? We'll hold a grudge. We'll withhold love. The Bible says specifically not to do that. We'll double look at a woman. We'll double click on a guy. Right? We'll do that. But the Bible says specifically there should not be a hint of sexual morality among you. But I'm a good person? I'm not. And neither are you. There is no one righteous. And for many of us, the reason that we struggle with the Pharisees' mindset is because we see ourselves as equals with Christ. We don't see ourselves as the prostitute who needs to be at the Savior's feet. 
we see ourselves as the Pharisee who invited Jesus to dinner. Therefore, because we see him as our equal, we do things like this. The truth of Christ holds as much validity in our life as our truth does. The directives of Jesus hold as much validity in our lives as our opinions about what we wanna do hold. The direction that Jesus says I should live my life, I'm only gonna adopt and weave into my life if I believe it's gonna benefit what I wanna achieve anyways. I'm only gonna forgive to the level that I believe that I've been forgiven. And if I don't think there's much about me to be forgiven, then I'm gonna be pretty quick to hold a grudge and be bitter towards someone else because I'm not like that. But I am. That is who I am. There is no, you, we just admitted it. There is no unrighteous, not even one. And I am an enemy of God in my heart. And I sin and I do it on purpose. I mean to do it. And it separates me from the heart of God. Because we are sinful, we are only worthy of wrath and judgment and rejection and hell. I am the murderer. I am the prostitute. I am the adulterer. I am the liar. I'm the dirty politician. I'm the pervert. I'm the abuser of power. I'm the absentee father. I'm the betrayer. I'm the difficult family member. I'm, I'm the frustrating boss. I'm the heretic. I'm the hypocrite. That's who I am. That's who you are. And we, like the apostle Paul said, must admit to ourselves that we are the chief of sinners. We're the prostitute. And where we belong is at the feet of Jesus, pouring out everything that we have and everything that we are on his feet. It is the reality of my spiritual condition. If I will not accept that, then I will never see my need for grace. And that's why God tells us about it. He says this in Romans chapter three, look back at it, verse 20. Why is God laying to our sin so much? Why is he so clear about it? Why is the Bible press against it so hard? Does God do that to make you miserable? Does, God, does a loving God do that so you walk around with shame and guilt and frustrated all the time? Is that why he would do that? No. Why does he do it? The Bible tells us. Romans chapter three, verse 20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The reason why God speaks against sin and teaches against sin and so illustrates the power of sin is because he wants us to be conscious of our sin. If I'm not conscious of the fact that I am a defiler, that I am wicked, that I am perverted, that I am a hard-hearted sinner, if I'm not conscious of that, then I will never seek the grace and the salvation. If I don't see myself in need of rescue, I will never reach out to the one who came to rescue me. And when I see myself as the Pharisee saw himself, 
I will look at another and say, I'm really glad that Jesus loves her. I'm glad I can kind of take myself off of Jesus's burdens because I'm a good person, a well-intentioned person, but we're not. God is a God of holiness. God is a God of righteousness. God is a God of justice. God is a God of wrath. God is a, a God of judgment. All of that is completely true of God. And I, as a sinner, will be the focus of that. And that's a truth. And it's a hard truth and it's a difficult truth. And this is what happens when you hear a hard truth. You have two options. One, you can accept it. And that will cause life change in you, right? That will cause life change in you. And if you trust the person's heart who's telling you the hard truth, you can accept that truth and you can have life change and it becomes a wonderful thing. The other thing you can do with truth is you can reject it. And when we reject truth, we go down a series of kind of steps that lead us to spiritual death. So I can look at myself and I can say, somebody can say, well, you're a sinner. The Bible says it, Jesus said it, Jeff said it. What else do you need to know? And you can look and say, well, I'm not, I'm, oh, I'm not a sinner. I'm so, I, I can't believe you even say that. I can't, I'm so flat. I can't, I can't even talk in complete sentences, right? I, I, just, I can't believe, what a jerk. Judgment, I hate this church. Get him off the stage and bring the band up. That's what I came here for anyways. I know how it works. I know how it works, right? We can reject it. And we will reject it and we'll say there's no way. And then what happens is if we reject it, we'll move into a resentment. Who are you to tell me what's right and wrong? Who are you to tell me how I'm supposed to live? Who are you? You know what? You're as big of a hypocrite as I am. See, we'll resent it. And when we hear a truth and we reject it and we grow to resent it, we'll harden our heart. And what that will always take us to is despair and spiritual death. Dude, if you don't start interacting with your wife differently, you're going to cry. Don't tell me how to interact with my wife. I saw you snap at your wife. And now we're years later. My marriage is gone, man. I don't know what to do. We've been talking for years about what to do, but you wouldn't listen to me. If you don't start respecting and honoring your husband, you're going to, don't tell me, talk to me, man. I'm telling you, you're going to lose his heart. He's going to, I'm the best thing I ever have. And that's the way it sounds, ladies. I'm just being honest with you. Like, just giving you the man's perspective. That's what we hear, okay? And you're, he won't pay attention to me. He doesn't care for me. He doesn't. When we reject truth, it always leads to denial, and it's going to move to resentment, and we're always going to wind up in a place of despair. Why does God so strongly bring the truth to us so that we're conscious of what's happening? You can think you're a good person. You can be mad at God for saying you're not, and you will be separated from him forever and eternity. 
And you will live in regret for all of eternity because you could have responded, but you would not. As much as God is a God of wrath and judgment and righteousness and judgment, he is equally a God of mercy, love, compassion, and, ready? Grace. There is nothing lovely about our hearts. And yet God, by his will, unmerited favor, chooses to love and pursue us. And thank God that that's the rest of the story, verse 21, chapter three, Romans. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by grace through the redemption that came from Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is the boasting? Is it excluded? Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. Paul says, listen, part one, you are a sinner, every single one. No one is righteous. All reject God. Part two, God sent his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came and he lived sinlessly. He died innocently. He sacrificed himself and he rose again. And in that, he creates a way of escape. Christ justifies us or he makes, he satisfies the law. There is a law, there is a breaking of the law, there's a penalty. Jesus satisfies that, he justifies that. He redeems us, he's our redemption. He takes something that's broken and he brings it to life, see? We, he makes, he's our righteousness. He makes us right with God. We've offended God. We've sinned against God, rebelled against God. Jesus makes a way for us to be right with God. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. What that means is this. Jesus died for you and me. We're the ones that should be nailed to that cross, bleeding out and suffocating in our own bodily fluid. Christ suffered and died for you and me. He paid a debt he did not owe. For those who owe a debt, they cannot pay. And he stepped in. He was sacrificed for us. He did that because he loves us. And the Father loves you so much and me so much that he did not spare his own son. And he let that happen for people who were still in their sin, Christ died for them. He didn't come to make good people better. There aren't any good people. He came to make dead people alive. He has to do a supernatural resurrection of our soul, just like he raised himself from the dead. And when I see that, when I recognize that by, by who I am, I have deeply offended God, right? 
We broke the Ten Commandments. We didn't even have trouble admitting that. We sin on purpose. We don't just stumble into things. We do it on purpose. We all know that. And yet God loves and God pursues and Christ came and he died and he made a way. And when I accept my sinfulness, all of a sudden accepting grace is a no-brainer. Accepting grace is overwhelming because that is not a snotty God being demanding. That is not an imposing God controlling my life. That is a loving Savior who came after people who weren't even aware that they needed to be rescued. You're the prostitute. So am I. Jesus's life is not like my life. I am wicked. He is holy. I am dead. He came to make me alive. Let me ask you these questions. In your lifetime... Have you ever, on your own, on purpose, accepted your sinfulness? I'm not talking about being religious. I'm not talking about a religious act like being baptized as a child. I'm talking about you. You as an individual, you look and say, you know what, I broke all Ten Commandments. I rebel against God, I sin on purpose. And then you as an individual, not your grandma or your mama, you as an individual said, God, I admit that what you say is true about me is true. You ever done that? Here's the second piece. In having done that, have you ever on your own, on purpose, accepted the grace of God. God, you love me. Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you make me right with you? Would you justify me? Would you give me salvation? And a person who accepts their sinfulness and a person who accepts grace looks like a person at the feet of Jesus, pouring out everything they have and everything that they are. They don't look like the Pharisee. Because they're overwhelmed that this loving God that I purposely offend would not spare his own son to rescue me. And if you've never done that, I encourage you to do that right now. You, pray, you don't need my words. You can talk from your heart to God's heart. You need to have that conversation. You need to figuratively get at the feet of Jesus and lay down your life, not because you're afraid of him, but because you're blown away by his love for you. You need to accept 
the grace of God that he freely offers. Now, for those of us who have received salvation already, let me say this. The Bible says God's mercies are made new every morning. So there's a real sense that when I get up in the morning or when I go into my next day, I need to receive the grace of God again. I don't mean re-receive your salvation. What I mean is reposition yourself in humility. This is why at Grace, when we have communion, we wash each other's feet. Because that reminds us that every day God loves me and forgives my ongoing sin. It's an ancient way of, we would think of it as washing our hands. I take one shower a day usually, and I wash my hands multiple times a day, right? If your faith has become a drudgery, if your service to God has become a burden, if tithing and investing in people and taking time out is become an obligation and a duty, the reason that that happens is always because we're at the table instead of at his feet. Because when I remember who I actually am, I realize the depth of God's love and I really don't have much of a problem pouring out my alabaster jar. When all of that locks in as routine and frustrating and I'm kind of fighting it instead of pursuing it, it's always because I've forgotten the depth of my need for grace and I've started to see God as a equal. And he's not. And he never will be. My life changes when I accept that I'm a sinner. My life changes completely when I accept God's grace. Would you pray with me as the band comes out? Jesus, help us to see this and remember it. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would soften every heart. For those who don't know Christ as Savior, I pray that you will draw them even now. Help them in humility and gratitude overcome our human objections to see ourselves for who we really are. God, for those of us who are followers of you already, help us to always abandon every sense of arrival. We don't have this down. We don't have it together. We haven't accomplished anything. We are still sinners in need of grace. And thank you, God, for saving us and for sanctifying us, and for continuing to do that. God, even this, this special week of the year, there, there's no better place to position ourselves, to remember your death, to celebrate your resurrection, than to put in front of us the reason why you had to die. God, let that spark humility and gratitude and responsiveness in me and in all of us. We love you, Jesus.
Thank you for loving us first. It's in your name.